Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of the Missing Stone podcast. Next week, there will be no new episodes, so tune back in on January 3rd. This week, I was excited to speak with Brittany Bartlett, PhD student at Oxford and the co-founder and president of the nonprofit The Next Swell. I really enjoyed my conversation with Brittany focusing on her marine biology dreams, both those that are fulfilled and those still in progress. Brittany then dove into her pandemic project, The Next Swell, and the impact she has been able to make through scholarships in marine sciences. We then discuss her next steps as a PhD student and the research she will be working on. One quick note, Brittany and I used NGO and nonprofit interchangeably. However, for legal reasons, The Next Swell is considered a nonprofit, but not an NGO. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Missing Stone podcast, everyone. I'm super excited to have PhD student at Oxford and the co-founder and president of the NGO, The Next Swell, Brittany Bartlett on today. How's everything going, Brittany? Hey, it's good. Thanks for having me. This is my first podcast, so I'm very excited to to be here. Um, Nervous, a little bit nervous, but yeah, thanks. So I have to start by asking you, you just moved from Hawaii to the UK. What has that been like? Well, most people think I'm crazy and most people probably aren't wrong. No, it's been, it's been great. It's definitely doing a two ocean move was aggressive, leaving the warm climate and the beautiful 80 degree weather and the 80 degree water. (laughs) So that's been hard. Every week we would dive and we would go swimming and surfing and all of the things in Hawaii. And I got to the UK and it it rains every day. That's definitely a fact. It's very cold. I had to buy some new pants because I didn't have any. I'm still getting used to looking the correct way when I'm crossing the street. And I'm still getting used to counting pounds because I don't know what a pound is and I don't know what two pounds looks like and I don't know any of that. (laughs) But other than that, I mean, yeah, it's been good. Oxford's beautiful. Uh, the people in my lab are amazing, and it's been definitely a new experience. Going from a full-time job to a poor student is definitely a change as well. But yeah, you know, the regular. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely a big move and pretty exciting, though. I don't know many people would choose to leave the Hawaii weather for where you're at now. <laughs> oh, no. Everyone thinks I'm absolutely crazy. And they're not entirely wrong. I. I support their thoughts. (laughs) What is the biggest thing you miss in Hawaii? I miss our shark dives. So we had an amazing group that we went out with all of the time. Island View, if I'm allowed to plug that. They were great guys. Yeah. (laughs) And we would go out. It was out of the North Shore, out of Haleiwa Harbor. And you would dive with Galapagos and sandbar sharks. And if you were lucky, there were tigers. The the swimming kind, not the furry kind. (laughs) And yeah, that was probably, we would probably do that at least once or twice a month. So that was probably my favorite, favorite thing. But I miss my friends there. My husband and my dog are still in Hawaii. So I guess I miss my husband. I really miss my dog. <laughs> but they'll be coming. They'll be coming to the, uh, Europe after the holiday. So excited to, excited to see them, obviously. What else do I miss? I think just being able, we went to the beach every day. Got to go surfing and then go to work. And that was fun. And yeah, it was definitely different experience. (laughs) So to make sure we don't rag too much on the UK, what's been the best part about the UK? I love the UK. I think, so I've always wanted to live abroad a hundred percent. And I came to the UK a few times growing up and absolutely loved it. My parents actually lived out here for about a year before I was born. So I think they always had kind of a love for it. So we would come out here. I think my favorite thing, I mean, I love the pubs. Pubs are great. I think just everything kind of about the culture. I think the architecture and the, I finally actually left Oxford kind of proper on last Sunday because I really hadn't since I'd been here. And the open country is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, The Holiday, but it was picture perfect, like exactly where Kate Winslet lives and where Cameron Diaz went to that little cottage house. It was, it was gorgeous. So I think that's really cool. I think though, the number one thing I love about, I should say Oxford and the probably the UK in general, how international it is though. It's so nice that I have friends now from everywhere, which is very different than in the US. I feel like everyone in the US was 
from the U.S., born and raised, and here everyone has a lot more different experiences, and it's it's fun to talk to everyone about kind of their background and where they've been and what got them motivated to come to pursue a degree at Oxford in conservation, and yeah. So you brought up your studying conservation at Oxford. So what was that first moment or experience that really got you to be interested in conservation? I will thank Grandpa Ralph when I was probably, I mean, I should say I've always loved, I grew up on the Jersey Shore, so it's always kind of been a thing. But my grandfather, when we went down for Florida for spring break or something like that, was trying to relate to me, I think, on some level, because he was an old guy and he liked his, I don't know, he liked golf and and bridge and all of the things that I don't really like. So he took me one day, just me and him, he took me to, it's such a weird concept. My grandfather's taking me to a power plant. He took me to a power plant because the water's so warm that there's manatees there. And it was the first time I ever saw a manatee in real life. And those adorable little potatoes are still to this day, one of my favorite, favorite animals. I'm actually going to go down to Florida to visit my husband's uh, parents in a couple weeks. And we're going to, I made it very clear that we're going to go see the manatees. Um, But I think that's when I really, really fell in love with marine conservation, or I shouldn't even say marine conservation, but kind of the marine environment and the marine world. Because before that I had, I'd seen dolphins and that kind of thing, but kind of to be up close and personal with these little potatoes were pretty cute. (laughs) And then I think the first time So again, that was when I was 10. And then a good friend of mine growing up, we played softball together and basketball and all the things. Kelly, shout out to Kelly. We, she found this, it was called the Dolphin, it was Dolphin Research Center, which is this nonprofit that's uh, based down in Marathon, uh, Florida. So in the Florida Keys. And uh, at the time it had 16 Atlantic bottlenose dolphins, I think in 12 and two California sea lions. And she, it was a camp. So we went down in seventh grade during the summer and it was like a three prong camp. So you would go beginner, intermediate, and then advanced. And that just kind of sold the deal. I mean, it's funny. Then five, eight years later, I ended up interning down at Dolphin Research Center as an education intern and the rest was kind of history. So yeah, I just, marine animals are cute, man. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, I didn't see, I guess I'd seen manatees growing up, but it wasn't until I moved to Florida and we went up to the springs and first saw in one of the cold snaps all the manatees coming out of the ocean into the springs. And there's just dozens surrounding your boat. And that's just an amazing experience. Amazing. But- <laughs> and then scary because ugh, I'm so irritated. So I well, I shouldn't say I'm irritated, actually. So they were downlisted, I guess, a couple of years ago. And now their numbers are plummeting again. And hopefully they get relisted as endangered. I think they got downlisted to threaten. So I'm really worried about them. (laughs) It's so sad seeing them and seeing kind of their, you know, they have vessel scars on their backs and that kind of thing. And it makes me sad. Definitely. (laughs) But so you mentioned that you went back to this camp to intern while you were in college. And I'd love to ask, what does that full circle feel like to be a student somewhere, get inspiration from something and then turn around and be able to then come back and inspire that next generation behind you? It was cool. And I know that wasn't a great answer. It was cool, though. I mean, there were dolphins from seventh and eighth grade that I knew. And then I was coming back and those dolphins were still there. And I knew them and I could talk to them. No, I couldn't talk to them, but like related with them and I'd recognize them and that kind of thing. So that was really cool. And then, yeah, so I said I was an education intern. So I was basically doing what a lot of the individuals had been doing for me. It was, you're right. It was kind of full circle. I was giving presentations and seminars on marine conservation and manatees and dolphins and, and sea lions. And it was just a really cool experience. It really opened my eyes to the fact that I feel very blessed living on the coast for pretty much my entire life, minus now, because obviously I don't live on the coast and then forever my undergrad, I guess. But a lot of people aren't aware of some things that you might you know, have grown up with in Atlantic bottlenose dolphin like off the coast when you're sitting on the beach. That's really unique to a lot of people. And a lot of people aren't aware of a lot of the threats that dolphins and manatees and sea lions and 
the whole gamut face. Um, so being able to talk to these people and these individuals from kind of the middle of the country who hadn't really been on the ocean that frequently was really cool because um, they were so passionate and loved these animals so much. And they were so inspired, I like to think, telling about this. They were so eager at the end of all of these seminars to be like, well, what can we do to help and how can we help? And so it's cool. You don't think that I don't know how old was I? I was 20, like a 20 year old doing a silly 40 minute presentation on the threats of Atlantic bottlenose dolphins would really have an impact, but I think it really did. And that was, that was pretty cool. That's absolutely awesome. And you're there for education, though you ultimately were in school more, you said for policy and uh, environmental studies. So what led to the decision to try to pursue policy rather than education or fieldwork? Fieldwork, I'm quite a klutz. And I've had my hand at fieldwork and I'm I'm not great at it. <laughs> but so I guess, so my undergrad was, uh, I went to school in Pennsylvania. My undergrad was in Pennsylvania and there wasn't a marine biology program or anything like that. And honestly, I wasn't totally sold on doing marine biology when I was going in at 17. I knew conservation, I knew ocean, but you know, I was kind of, kind of all over the place. And my kind of thought process is the 17 year old going in and I declared my I was a double major in environmental studies and political science within three weeks literally of being at school which I think is crazy I had friends who were changing their majors up until the last possible moment junior year and my thought process is there are so many amazing researchers out there on the ground doing the really I mean the cool stuff right tagging sharks and doing surveys and being on boats and doing all this cool stuff. But I think a big gap is turning that awesome research right now into effective policy. There's a missing link. And I don't know necessarily where that gap comes comes from. Is it a lack of communication between the scientists and the policymakers? Is it just a lack of incorporation of some other dynamics that are coming in, whether it be social dynamics or cultural or political or whatever it may be? So I, my goal was always to be like, okay, well, if I am not the best person at doing the cool stuff, I'm going to still try to get my, get my, I don't know, do something good, do something positive and just kind of do that policy uh, aspect. So that was probably a driving factor. And I had grown up kind of in the policy realm. My mom was mayor of our town, which was a, it's just a fun fact. So I was kind of always kind of in that. And she did a lot of stuff with urban sprawl and kind of trying to combat urban sprawl and that. So I saw kind of firsthand how her policy mechanisms or whatever you want to call it impacted our little our little New Jersey town. So yeah, I mean, I kind of just grew up with it, I think. And then tried to put where my, I tr- what I'm good at. I tried to focus on what I'm good at because I'm not saying I'm good at anything, <laughs> but I work hard. <laughs> no, that's definitely a big thing with conservation. I feel like is people try to pursue simply the thing that they feel they, they should go for rather than look around and say, what am I good at? How can I contribute the most to this field. I know I'm definitely guilty of that as well. So it's it's definitely a good place to set up. And I did want to ask you, I had Renee Secor on yesterday, who's a conservation advocate for uh, Project Coyote. And she said that part, she thinks part of the issue with converting this science to advocacy and policy is that a lot of scientists feel that if they were to dip into advocacy or policy, it would mar their credibility in the scientific realm. And I would love to ask you how you feel about that statement. I 100% agree with that. I think that's a a big part about being a researcher is being as neutral as you possibly can. So you, you publish your data and Sure, you can offer recommendations and that kind of thing. But yeah, I think if you get too much in the advocacy realm, you do kind of become a little less legitimate. And I'm not saying that, I, I shouldn't say becoming less legitimate. I think that's how it's perceived by a lot of people. Not necessarily not necessarily saying that's the case. But I do think that's definitely a thing. I mean, and everyone, if you're doing marine species research, of course you want to save the animals or you want to save the oceans or cut climate change or whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, you stick to that data and you try not to not to try not to show any biases, I think, to make sure that, yeah, your research is credible. Definitely. Now, you were in undergrad for poli-sci and environmental. 
So I love to ask people when you graduated, what was that next step? Because I feel like a lot of people in this field graduate thinking that they'll quickly land something. There's so much so many opportunities out there and never end up, not never, but a lot of times end up not where they expected to. So I'd love to hear what was that experience transitioning out of your undergrad? Yeah, definitely. I think that a big problem, I mean, it's the conservation realm is a lot of times you need epic amounts of volunteer or internships or that kind of thing, but a lot of them don't pay. So it's really kind of an unfair situation. So jobs are asking for five years of experience, but you can't necessarily get that if you are doing a job that can't pay if you need to afford life. I always knew that I was going to go to grad school, I think probably at least, uh, probably at least starting my sophomore year. And I was kind of looking at a number of different, different universities kind of across the country. Um, But there, it, there were two universities that ended up having kind of exactly what I wanted to. And one was uh, UC Santa Barbara, which has the Brent School of Management, which is awesome. Um, and then one was University of Miami, which had this marine affairs and policy program, which was entirely perfect. I had already known that I loved the keys in that area. Miami's super cool city. Um, but it's the that program was so up my alley and so exactly what I wanted to be doing uh, that it just made sense. So... And I know that's not for everyone. I think I did a panel a couple, maybe two years ago um, at my undergrad um, and everyone, you know, we got asked kind of that same exact question. Like, how did you know you wanted to go right to grad school, blah, blah, blah. And for me, I didn't really think there was another option, especially for our field. I think a lot of times you have to go at least get your master's. Um, But that being said, that's definitely not the not the only route. A lot of people that were on that panel took a few years off. Then they decided that they wanted to go back and get their master's. They really wanted to kind of focus in on what they wanted to do. Whereas I kind of knew that I wanted to do marine policy 100%. So that made it easy for me. I think I was lucky in that regard for sure. So ultimately, you ended up leaving your master's and not ending up immediately in policy. So what is that process like? So I was doing environmental consulting for a couple, how long was that? Maybe two years. Yeah. And it wasn't really policy. It was (laughs) consulting-ish, consulting things. But I think that was something that I had to be prepared for. And I think that's everyone in this field. You kind of have to be prepared for not, you're not, it's not going to be a straight line, right? It's going to be whatever you call, I'm Poor podcast people can't can't see this that I'm the, oh I'm gonna say it's a wave how about it's a wave so it's never a straight line there's always gonna be ups and downs especially in this career because it's not A B C D it's literally A to D to F to Z I don't even know so I think that was I was just happy to get into a position that was environmental based I think and then it was just the patience game I knew that I wanted I didn't want to be you know I'd been in Florida for about five years. I was ready to get out of Florida. I was ready to kind of take the next step. But it was, yeah, two years of looking for jobs and waiting for something to give. And I applied to a lot of jobs. I got rejected from a lot of jobs. But that's the thing. Just deal with it. Keep going. Something positive has to happen. And two years later, yeah, I was able to land my first big girl job with the Navy. And yeah. That's awesome. So I did my first year out of undergrad as a consultant. Now in California, there's a lot of construction monitors that they hire. So I was basically spending about 60% of my day just walking back and forth next to a bulldozer doing groundbreaking. (laughs) And every once in a while, you save a kangaroo rat and you pat yourself on the back. But it's, it's definitely monotonous. And it's it's hard sometimes to feel the difference you're making in consulting. So I'd love to ask how you really felt in consulting, I guess, something that frustrated you. And then to kind of bring the positive back in, we'll follow that up with something that you really enjoyed or felt like you were able to make a real difference in consulting. So I think one cool aspect was I did get to dive a little bit. So not a lot, but a couple months uh, I was helping with habitat mapping surveys in Naples, Florida. So that was fun, obviously, because everyone loves to dive. I think for a negative, I mean, everyone I worked with was really nice. I was just also very young. And I, if 
and I wasn't passionate about it. And I think that was probably my biggest, biggest qualm I had with consulting. It just wasn't my passion. It wasn't what I was trying to do. It's funny. I actually ended up having an interview in Boston for a totally, completely not environmental company because I was just kind of so fed up and I wasn't making a lot of money and Still, I mean, no one makes a lot of money in this career and that's fine. And we're there now. But, and I was also unhappy. I was commuting from Miami to Boca Raton, which is about an hour commute every day, which was super hard. And I was very close to kind of throwing in the handkerchief or the raising the white flag and just moving up to Boston and taking this job that was totally nothing I had ever thought I would do because I was so fed up. But my brother calls me one night late. I don't even know. Probably like two in the morning. I have no idea. He was probably drunk. Maybe, maybe cut that. But <laughs> he was like, I just want you to know, I'm so proud of you for not copping out and following your dream and not selling out. And I'm really proud of you. And me and my brother aren't like so, so it was just, it was really cute. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll stick in this for a little, little while longer. And pretty soon after that, I got this uh, job as a Marine resource specialist with the Navy and kind of, yeah. So thanks, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) So what was the gist of that job as a Marine resource specialist? What were you doing for the Navy? So I started in, so I, Got that job in September, in 20, September 2015, I started. And I started in Norfolk, Virginia, because that's where the, I believe Norfolk is the biggest Navy base. I should probably know that. And I was there from 2015 to 2019. And then I transferred over to Pearl Harbor. So that's what got me to Hawaii from 2019 to 2023. And it was a full gamut of a lot of stuff. But the primary gist was working to ensure U.S. Navy compliance with the environment or Endangered Species Act, Marine Mammal Protection Act, National Environmental Policy Act, all of the big environmental laws, making sure that the Navy complied with those. So a lot of environmental impact statements, a lot of consultation, interagency consultation with National Marine Fisheries Service. Uh, and then we got to do a lot of really cool research. A lot of it got contracted out to universities and that kind of thing. But we did in Virginia, we had a really cool project going that I think is still going on surveying harbor seals. Fun fact, there's a lot of harbor seals in Virginia, if no one knew. And so, yeah, doing kind of site fidelity work, kind of seeing their population abundance, all that. And then in Hawaii, a couple of my favorite projects, one sea turtle project that I loved was looking at sea turtle resting habitat and resting behavior in Pearl Harbor. That was one project I managed. Then another project that I do think is still going on now, which I loved, is and I never got to get up, got up to got to get up to Alaska, but tagging of Chinook salmon. So trying to understand the distribution of Chinook salmon in the Gulf of Alaska, because a a lot of those populations are currently endangered, but also because they're food for the southern resident killer whale, which is obviously very endangered. So that was a really fun project. Yeah, it was. I I mean I thought it was great. I everyone I worked with again was. You guys think I probably just love everyone, but everyone I worked with was amazing. Everyone was very, very passionate about marine conservation that I worked with, which was awesome. It was good to be in good company. And yeah, I think that is the only reason that I got into Oxford. I think that experience, that eight years of working for the Navy, because it's a unique job. I mean, you don't really always think that you're going to go work for the Navy after you spend all this time doing marine conservation work. But fun fact, the Navy does a lot for... Yeah, marine species and marine research. So it was a good, it was definitely a good job, but always time for a change. (laughs) So you're conducting surveys and doing all this work for the Navy. You have a full-time job, you're in Hawaii, and you choose to go back for a PhD. What ultimately led you to decide to dive back in to the school system and everything that comes with a PhD? All the, the stress, the uncertainty, the lower pay. So what the lower pay, the no pay, (laughs) the no pay. So what is that decision really like? I think it is kind of goes to show, well, how kooky I am. So that's definitely one thing we have to take into account, but also how just passionate I am about certain, certain things and certain issues. So when I was with the Navy, I was working on environmental compliance with, with policy that had already been enacted, but a lot of policy not that necessarily, but a lot of policy sucks, right? A lot of environmental policy is not good. It doesn't incorporate so many different interdisciplinary factors that it needs to, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of wanted to shift from kind of policy compliance to policy development, I guess I should say, and policy implementation. So I had kind of combined my two focuses 
So fisheries management for quite a while and then compliance and kind of developed this proposal working to kind of explore ways to combat uh, illegal, unreported and unregulated shark fishing in small scale fisheries is kind of what my project is about now. And it's really taking in that fisheries management aspects and then those aspects associated kind of with compliance and and um, the human dynamics, which I think a lot of policy misses. I think policy is either focused very much on the economy are very focused on environmental factors and it misses kind of all those other nuances. So that kind of is what drove me to, yeah, come, come do this craziness. I didn't think I was going to end up in the UK. That's for sure. It was funny. I was writing my proposal and I just kept citing these three different individuals. And I was like, okay, I guess I should find out where these three individuals are. And they were all here. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I am reaching out to them now. (laughs) So I do have a lot of questions about your current program and doing conservation in the UK versus in the US. But I'd kind of like to end this podcast with that since that's your current chapter. So I'd love to backtrack a little bit and talk about something we haven't touched on. And that's the the choice you made to really actually make an impact in this field by starting a nonprofit. So you started the next swell in NGO and I'd love to ask both what is the goals of the next swell? And then I am going to want to get into what is the the stress and the excitement in founding a nonprofit? I have to give a shout out to my husband who definitely has helped with this. He's the other co-founder. So before I get into it, thanks, Kevin. Appreciate you. So it actually started in, it was our, our COVID project. I mean, straight up. That's exactly what it was. We had been reading all of these articles that were talking about how students were having to drop out of school and couldn't afford education. And it really upset me because there are so many smart kids trying to do things, but it's not their fault if you can't afford education. And COVID just kind of totally compounded that issue. And so that was kind of the thought. Why are our oceans going to suffer because of lack of finances for education. So that's kind of how it started. And we were originally called, I'm trying to think of what our original name was, SUS. It was supposed to be like Students for Ocean-Oriented Scholarships or something. And our thought was we wanted to make it SOS, but it didn't work. So it ended up being S-O-O-S. I don't know. So that was a pain in the butt when we were trying to get that name changed through the all the IRS nonprofit stuff. But Kevin, my husband, actually did all of the, the hard getting it accepted as a 501c3 and all that. So I definitely didn't do that. But I was kind of the mastermind behind the actual program and that sort of thing. And honestly, I'm I'm obsessed with it. I love it. <laughs> it's so funny. We didn't know if we want if we were going to be able to kind of keep it going when we moved overseas. And I was like, nope, it's happening. It's going. It's done so much good. So the the premise is primary premise is raising uh, money for scholarships for students who are pursuing degrees in a marine science field, a marine conservation field. The thing I really do love about it is that it's not just straight marine biology. Like we've had people apply from all different areas and it goes to show you that all different areas can make an impact in marine conservation efforts, which I think is something really important to highlight because everyone's like, well, I'm not good at biology or I don't scuba dive. That's fine. Totally fine. There are so many other ways to impact the ocean in a positive way, the environment, that sort of thing. You don't have to be a straight scientist. I'm not a straight scientist at all. I'm not a marine biologist. I'm definitely not. I'm a marine policist. I don't even know what you would call me. So yeah, so it started in 2020. I think our first round of scholarships got awarded in 2021. And it was, I think, $2,000 for three or four students. And then in 2022, we were able to award more. And then this past year, 2023, we were able to award $15,000 worth of scholarships. So three students who were doing three students for $5,000. And the amount of work that these people are doing are unreal. We've had people working on monk seals. We've had people starting their own education programs. We've had people working on abalone and oysters and killer whales. And I was honestly, that's a main reason I decided to come back to school. I was like, these people are doing such cool stuff and I'm just not doing that. So I think every next swell applicant because they inspired me to come back to school. So yeah, that's that's the main gist of the next swell. And then we also have a social media where we do current events and 
sustainable eats is kind of one of our little zoom things that we were doing a lot during COVID. We do some seminars and presentations. Every year we try to do a presentation where some of the Nextwell scholarship winners will actually come talk and everyone is already always blown away. Always blown away. Because some of these kids are like 22 and they're just complete rock stars. I don't even, I don't even get it. But yeah, it's, I I really do love it. It's one of my favorite things that we do and, and it's fun. It's not I know you said stress and it's sometimes stressful, but not really. I would rather do that than just sit on my couch and watch Netflix. I think it's kind of relaxing and it's not, I mean, it's a lot of fundraising. So I guess that is stressful because it's not great asking people for money all the time. But the last two weeks we had, so Giving Tuesday was last week. And then we just did our online auction, which is one of our biggest, uh, biggest events. And we raised like $7,000. So, I mean, only from those people, like people care, which is kind of cool. People actually care what we're doing. Yay. So, I mean, that's a good thing. At least we know that the nonprofit isn't something silly that no one, no one cares about. And I sent an email to some like the universities the other day and I was like, applications open January 15th. And I've already gotten a lot of, a lot of feedback and I'm excited for applications to open. So if you are a graduate student who is looking for some money, apply to the next well. I'd love to ask some of the, for one or two stories of applicants that you've worked with that you ended up sponsoring that really stood out to you. I know, I mean, you've had a handful of, or not a handful of applicants, but a handful of people you've given scholarships to, and I'm sure you'd love to highlight all of them. But if there's one or two that you would like to kind of just highlight, what's the work they're doing and what made you excited about what they were doing? Yes. I think that I will have to get most excited about one of the individuals this past year because I actually was able to meet her in person, which was really fun. She came to one of our trivia nights, which was a fundraiser, and she did a little little speech for us. And just and so that was really cool. She is doing some awesome work. She started a program, her and another a student called Smile, uh, I think S-M-I-L-L-E. And it's basically educating marine science education for I think like elementary school uh, level kids. But then aside from that, she's doing a lot of monk seal work. All of her stuff is vocalizations of Hawaiian monk seals. And for those who don't know, Hawaiian monk seals are incredibly endangered. I think there's about 11, don't quote me on that. I think about 1100 left and they're the cutest things in the entire world. So I think, yeah, definitely she's been, she's been awesome. But honestly, every single person that we have awarded scholarships for has been amazing they're so passionate and so excited and always willing if i'm like can you guys do a presentation or something like that always very very much on board so yeah she has been awesome yeah i mean like i said one person was doing oyster work in texas one person was doing abalone work in washington one was doing southern resident killer whales and she actually just went on from her master's and now she's getting a phd so that's cool yeah, coral reef stuff, sharks. It's kind of runs the full gamut. So it's cool. That's awesome. And these are the people who inspired you to go back to the program you're now in. So now that we're diving back in towards your PhD research and what you're now starting, I'd love to ask what is going to be the focus of this research? Yeah, so my research is kind of a compilation of what I did for my master's, which was very focused on fisheries management, and then what I've kind of been doing with the Navy, which is a lot of compliance work. So ultimately, it's going to be looking at what's called illegal, well, IUU is is a little acronym, but illegal, unreported, and unregulated shark fishing in small-scale fisheries. And it's ultimately going to look at exploring equitable conservation measures to enhance shark conservation. So that's that's in a nutshell. I still don't have a study site. So when I get one of those, I'll let you know. And yeah, I'm really excited to get to get kind of in it. My end goal is kind of to work for the United Nations type or Pew Charitable Trust or something in that nature that really works to kind of develop really effective and great policy that works for both people and for sharks. People depend on sharks for food and for income and for intrinsic values, for recreational values, all of these things. So We want to obviously conserve sharks and we all obviously want to help people. You're saying we all want to conserve sharks. We all want to help people. And this is going to sound like a familiar uh, question for those who have listened to episode five with Dana Tricarico. But as much as you're passionate about sharks, there's people out there who view them as dangerous. They're considered controversial. 
And I know those of us who love sharks, this is sometimes hard for us to grasp and gather and it can add stress to the work you're doing. So what is it like working with a species that not everyone is on board to save? I mean, I have come across friends who are like, you're, you're, you're swimming with the sharks. You're in the shark's house now. Make jokes like that. But I think that, okay, here's, here's a good example, actually. So my parents came out to visit me in Hawaii back in March. Yeah, March. And with my brother and then his girlfriend and then two of our best friends. And they were so not down to go shark diving, right? They were like, we're not doing this. There's no way in hell. They're sharks. We're not swimming with sharks freely. They talked about it after doing that for the entire week. It was the highlight of their week. I just have pictures of my dad and he is just, he was the last one to get out of the water. I mean, he loved it so much. He didn't want to get out. So it's just funny because I think if you just talk to someone and kind of share your views as well, and if you, if these individuals experience sharks kind of in the, in the natural environment, I think everyone would appreciate them for how cool they are. But that being said, yeah, they're, they're dangerous. They're sharks. They're not all of them, but most of them are apex. A lot of them are, I shouldn't say most, a lot of them are apex predators. You don't, don't want to go ride them or, you know, boop their nose or piss them off. They are large animals, but they're just like dogs. Dogs can be feisty too. I mean, I love dogs, <laughs> but I definitely, I understand why people are scared of them. I mean, Jaws, how many shark, how many shark movies out there are there? So many, but they're cool. And I think people, if a little, just a little bit of education and a little bit of like access to them, I think would change a lot of viewpoints for sure. I can definitely see that. So then the last thing I really wanted to touch on is now that you are doing your PhD in the UK, I'd love to ask if you've noticed any differences in how conservation is managed or run in the UK versus the US or how it is working in conservation. Are there any differences there? Question. That's the three, the three second pause right there. <laughs> I think, no, I'm going to say, I think that everyone has the same end goals. Whatever country you go to, whatever school you're at, if you're kind of in this arena, there's an, there's an end goal, right? Everyone wants to help whatever area of conservation they're focused on. And there's actually an ongoing initiative. I'm not positive if it just started or how far along it's been, but it's a compilation of different UK universities working together. So instead of competing universities to be the best university or produce the most papers or whatever, everyone is coming together for that end goal of achieving those 17 UN sustainable development goals and that kind of thing. Um, so I think that goes to show that, sure, programs and classes and that kind of thing can be different. Actually, in the UK, you don't take classes. So that's kind of cool. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think at the end of the day, everyone has an end goal. And I think how everyone goes about it might be a little bit different, but it's still, it's still hopefully going to get us there. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I like to end the podcast with the same four questions to everybody. So the first one of those, and these can be, you can answer them rapid fire, or we can elaborate, have a conversation about them whatever works best for you. But the first one is what part of conservation today needs our attention the most? So I'm probably going to say this, probably not the same answer that you've gotten in the past, because I'm not going to say a threat. Instead, I'm actually going to say people's apathy, I think, is what I think we need to change human behavior. And I think that's possible. I think that we can absolutely do that. But I think that's really, really a big thing. I think we need to change people's behavior to be more willing and open to change. And I don't know if that's going to be through education. You can't make people though, right? You need to incorporate, as I was saying earlier, all of those social dimensions into, into policy and into those things. So you really need to yeah, work to actually change people's behavior as opposed to making them just do something. But I also think there just needs to be a broader understanding globally. And I'm trying to say this in kind of the right way, but everyone has different situations. Everyone's in different scenarios. You have people who need to eat fish, right? Um, there's a lot of small island developing countries that depend on fish for their survival and for their income. You can't cut that out, right? So you have to change, you have to make everyone more open to 
we ask this again? I actually, so the thing is, is I actually really liked that answer. There's, there's two areas. I actually really wanted to elaborate with you. So if you'll let me leave all that in, uh, I'd love to ask you one, you, and you brought this up before and I hadn't dove in on it. So I really want to now you keep bringing up the human component of conservation. And it's something that actually struck a chord with me a little bit in my master's program is uh, I felt like in our discussions, there wasn't factored in this idea that the proposal needs to be accepted by the community. The proposal needs to be accepted by the, whether that's globally or a small town, an island, the people there need to buy in or it's not going to work. And so I'd love to hear you elaborate on that, especially around the central theme of apathy is how important is it to really get people to buy into the conservation that you're doing? It's the most important thing. I mean, even for my research and I, it's not people being apathetic, it's people needing their livelihood and that sort of thing. But it needs to be relevant on a spatio-temporal scale too, right? Everyone has different thoughts. Everyone has different values, different cultures. Everyone is surrounded by different external factors, different social factors, cultural factors, political factors, all that. So you really need to incorporate all of those dynamics. And it's hard. It's not easy because one policy that might work in one country or one fishery is not going to work somewhere else. It needs to actually really incorporate the local community. It needs to be equitable. It needs to make sure that you're not disenfranchising any communities. Because again, this is people's lives. And I think that's one of the biggest things. And I think in the past, top-down management has really just kind of homogenized a lot of policy and made it very overarching and has not considered human dynamics and kind of what people need and that sort of thing. And right, if you don't include that, then people aren't going to comply with it, right? They don't, I mean, they have other priorities that are not necessarily saving the, I don't know, any animal, right? Or anything like that. So I do think that's a huge component. My episode with Dave Johnson of the Katie Adamson Fund, he talks about some of their first work was in Nepal. And they went in to try to protect a lot of the carnivores, the wildlife in general, but partially the carnivores in Nepal. And they ended up sponsoring an orphanage where over half the children in that orphanage are orphaned by wild animal attacks in that village. And so it was interesting talking to him because it was so eye-opening where he's like, yes, we want to save all this wildlife, but we're doing this in a village that actually lives next to this wildlife and sees kind of the issues that can come from living surrounded by this wildlife. So how do we merge these two sides? So they became extremely involved in this orphanage because it kind of helps bring back that reality of we're working on two different sides of this whole issue. Yeah, absolutely. I And it again, that's a unique, unique to that location as well. So yeah. you really have to, it has to be, take all those considerations to make that policy relevant to that location. That's, yeah, that's a crazy, I mean, I don't know how you do that. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's definitely an interesting, what they ended up doing is a lot of their work is actually around it, developing beehives and creating an economy for that village surrounding beekeeping. That's amazing. So it's, it's finding these areas that when you enter, you never would have expected that to be where. That's very cool. That's yeah, exactly. You never know how the conservation mechanisms are going to pan out after you actually get on the ground. Right. And (laughs) who, yeah, who would have thought that it was going to be beekeeping, but Hey, definitely. (laughs) But yeah, so the second question is a little happier. What areas of conservation do you want to see grow? Well, I mean, I'm going to be a little biased because of my my nonprofit, but I just think I want to get more people in it. And I think that's happening. It's people care more and more. Every generation is getting more involved with not just marine conservation, but environmental conservation and climate change and all of these environmental factors and all of that. And I think the more people we get involved, that's that's what we need. I think, and I said apathy earlier, I think as each generation, we get each generation, becomes less and less apathetic. I think people are caring more and more. I think if you care and we should, 
hopefully we'll be good because we're depending on the next generation because we got a lot of, a lot of work to do. So, yeah. That's awesome. I mean, it really is vital to get people involved. I do think there needs to be a little bit of a reckoning too, though, in the field, because when you mentioned apathy, I also kind of went to apathy amongst the people in conservation. The number of people I graduated with who are now in business or some sort of other project management position that's no longer, I mean, you said you almost left the field two years in. Right. So I feel like that's that's a big thing too, is we need more people, but we also need more opportunities for those people. I agree. I think that the field needs to be more more viable. I think I was talking to someone a couple of weeks ago and all of this education and that, like I was saying earlier, they're just, they're still doing an, an unpaid internship for six months. Um, and it's, ju- that's just hard and people can't, people can't live like that. Um, and at some point something's got to give because you can't volunteer for a hundred years. I mean, I, that would be awesome, but people need to eat. That's a, that's a thing. So yeah, I think that's a big, big problem. It's funny when, other people in these jobs are making so much money. And then I'm going to end up going to school for a kajillion years and really like following my passion and trying to do something good. And I'm never going to make that amount of money. And that's fine. And that's totally cool. And I don't care. But I do think that you have to at least be able to survive. And I think a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of marine conservation work is volunteer or are unpaid internships. And that's just not, not going to cut it. And I do have to highlight in this point that there's a big disparity in this field where, I mean, it's it really is the people who are able to afford to take these positions. So the diversity in this field that you end up seeing is so much lower than any other field that I live uh-huh. around and my friends are in. And that's definitely something that we need to change. A hundred percent. It is such a, yeah, a privileged field. I. I think. And I agree with that. And I also kind of going from that as well, I think that the ability to be a good, what society would label a good conservationist is also privileged, right? Because think about it, if you're getting on the vegan train, those people can afford to eat these, you know, eat a certain way, eat organically, all that, which is not the option for quite a lot of people who I was saying before, obviously depend on this fish, um, I think fish make up 50% of a protein diet for quite a lot of small island developing nations. So yeah, there's a lot of privilege in the field and kind of in the realm of conservation that I think definitely needs to be handled. And that goes back to equity and social dimensions and human dynamics. And Definitely. So question number three, what concerns you about the future of conservation? Well, that goes back to apathy too. I don't want people to just give up. I mean, we have these what sustainable de- sustainable development goals, right? That we're supposed to achieve by 2030. And I was reading a report today and we're not really on track to achieve a lot of those. And a lot of those are environmental focused. And I'm just nervous that everyone's going to kind of throw up their hat and be like, well, I mean, it was a good run. Glad, glad we tried. But so I think that definitely worries me. Because we got to, I mean, we got to keep trying, right? <laughs> um, no, that apathy side, it's fascinating. I was watching last night, my fiance and I started watching Life on This Planet, the new Netflix documentary. And I pulled a couple things up and ended up seeing a review written that basically started with the person saying, there used to be so many great nature documentaries that just showed the wonders of life. And now there's a new political agenda in all these documentaries. And it's fascinating because it is to those of us in this field, it's such a reality to us that yes, this, this life will be here. That needs to be a message. If you like watching these documentaries, you have to care that it's going to be here in 100, 200, 500 years. And it's interesting seeing the apathy in just the average person that turns these programs on. It is. It's weird. You'll see, For example, I mean, Shark Week is a good example, too. You'll see people being so stoked on Shark Week and whatever. And then, great, you get excited for a week and then you just don't do anything for the next three. How many weeks are there? I don't know. That's always something. Or you get so excited. You're like, oh, yeah, planet Earth is on. I love nature. I love this. And then 
no one actually does anything. And that's so frustrating. <laughs> I'm glad you care. And that's awesome. But do you care enough is, I guess, care enough to actually try to make an effort in some in some regards. And I know that's hard to say. And a lot of people don't have the capacity. And there's a lot of different stuff going on that definitely hinders the potential for people to act in certain ways. But it is definitely people put on a good show. And then when push comes to shove, it sometimes doesn't doesn't fly. I definitely agree. And then we're ending on one that I think is particularly important to you, because it's advice to future conservationists. Oh, that's a good one. I have two. Well, yeah, two. The first is, Obviously, for me, there is literally no correct path to get into marine conservation. I mean, I've been all over the place. I, I'm i 34 and I'm back in school. Every, again, everyone thinks I'm crazy, but here I am. So don't ever get, don't get demotivated or frustrated because it's, this is the field. It's not like you're a finance career where you have those little check marks at every age or whatever it might be. It looks different for absolutely everyone and that's fine, but stick with it because I think it's worth it. I, I know it's worth it. And then my second one is marine conservation is such a wide, there are so many opportunities. You don't, as I was saying earlier, you don't have to be a scuba diver. You don't have to be a marine biologist. You don't have to even be a scientist. There's so many journalists can be helpful. You know, journalists can do a lot, a lot of great a- advocacy, politics, education. You can go in any which way and you're still having a positive impact on the environment in one way or another. So don't feel like you have to major in marine biology and then go get a master's in marine biology and then go get a PhD in marine biology. That is not the case. Although you don't need a PhD if you, that is also a fact. So don't stress on that. Don't stress on school or anything like that if school's not your thing or if you don't enjoy it. Because a lot of people don't like school and that's fine. Um, so many different ways to help. Yeah. So don't don't fret. Oh, I agree so much with that. Some of the most successful people around me in conservation were ones that realized that it was going to be more valuable to go get a different degree, something and like an econ degree. And now econ, they're working... Yeah. And they're working with environmental tax breaks and doing stuff in that realm. And they're able to use this other thing they were interested in and bring it back to the environment, back to conservation. So it's there's so many opportunities out there. I definitely agree. If there's something else you're interested in, get that degree and then apply it to this field. Percent, a hundred percent. I think that's super important. (laughs) Super important for everyone to know too. So I'm just going to scream it from the rooftops. You don't have to be a marine biologist. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I had so much fun with this conversation, and uh, I can't wait until we release it. 